The air conditioner is on, I promise. I'm not sure what's happening with it, but uh, soon enough we'll be down on Main Street. Uh, many people have asked me the story of meeting my wife, and so I'll share a bit of it with you now. We met when we were 12. Um, some of you guys know that story. Uh, she was pretty into me. I was not into her at that point, um, just to be honest and vulnerable. Um, now, she was an amazing girl at 12, and we started dating when we were 16 years old. I told her on our uh, second date that we were going to get married. Wouldn't recommend that uh, to most normal humans, but looked up at the stars, told her that that one star was called Eternity, and she said, well, how do you know that's named Eternity? And I said, because that's how long we're going to be together, baby. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You feel me? You feel me? And uh, you guys can write that one down and use it to your discretion, but... uh, Friends of mine always ask me, what's your, what's your favorite part about your wife, Heidi? What's your, like, what's your favorite thing about her? It's funny, I was talking with a Brandon Castle yesterday, and, and he, said, uh, he said, man, sometimes I miss being in your lot family, and I, you know, was expecting this sentimental moment with him, and he's like, yeah, did your wife make killer cookie bars? You know what I'm saying? Like, like being in your, and you, got, you guys know my wife's cookie bars, you know? You know, and she makes these things called scotcheroos, which sound naughty, but they're not. They sound dicey, but they're just brilliant, this little nugget of, you know, Rice crispy with chocolate, yummy. Anyway, she's a great cook. It's one of the reasons why I love her. She's uh, incredibly um, amazing with our kids. I love my wife because when I watch her with our children, um, she, the girl just had a baby, a C-section, two, day, two weeks and one day ago, and the girl up in here tonight. Well, you know, like, that's a woman. You see what I'm saying? Like, C-sections, normally you're not even supposed to like drive for three weeks, you know? Girl in like three days was up and down stairs. Man, I'm just, honey, I, I love you, babe. Just better be earning me something, right? And uh, no, uh, great cook, amazing with our kids. She's incredibly gorgeous, but I have to be honest, I think the thing that I love about my wife the most, uh, and I don't mean this um, strangely, but she, she lives with me, Okay? And those of you that know me well, you know, like, I'm just daily coming home with crazy ideas. And she, on a daily basis, has to hear and process these crazy ideas and then, like, navigate life through them, you know? Uh, my most recent crazy idea is I want to take, um, when Avery is seven years old, I want to start just traveling the world once a summer with all of our kids. Because I would love for them to be able to say, Daddy, do you remember when I was eight and we were in Australia? And, and I've literally heard this, this uh, statement by my wife a hundred times. She's like, so how are we going to afford that? And I always say, I'm not sure, babe. And, and she's just constantly like extending grace to these crazy ideas, which included church planting many years ago. I love, love, love my wife. It's interesting uh, how many times when we're asked, like, what's the, your favorite part about something? But it's oftentimes difficult to discern because like something is so awesome. See what I'm saying? Like, it's like asking what your favorite blizzard is, you know? It's like, I don't know, cookie dough or Oreo. It's all awesome, you know? Like, just <laughs> rub it in my face or something. It's incredible, right? Um, that being said, I want to ask you two questions before we get going. The first question is this. What is your favorite piece of the character of God? Every fuse just blew. Isn't that awesome? We're just going to roll with it. You guys can actually turn on the house lights if you want just to brighten them up a little bit. That'd be awesome. What is, your, what is your favorite piece of the character of God? All the pieces of God's character. If you were to say your favorite piece of it, how would you communicate that? Think on it. It's a tough question. Again, it's that 
It's like it's strange asking that question because he's incredible. One more question. Are there any pieces of God's character that you struggle with? When you think about God and who he is and all of his might and all the aspects of his character, are there any pieces that you struggle with? Are there any pieces that you find yourself struggling even to love or comprehend? Tonight, um, we're going to examine one of those pieces that most Christians would say is the most difficult piece to love about God. And for sure, culture would say that this character trait of God is difficult to love. By the end of tonight, my hope and my prayer is that we have a holistic picture of the depth of possibility of our love for God. You with me? So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're just joining us tonight, we've been journeying through um, 1 Peter, and um, it's been an amazing journey for us. The book is primarily about suffering and how Christians are to deal with suffering. And in these uh, three verses tonight, he expounds a brilliant topic to drive home an incredible point. So let's read all three verses, and then we're going to dive in. Verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Verse 18, And if the... And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Listen, these three verses I am obsessed with. All right? So I need you to stay with me. I need you to follow along. And we need to dive in together. Sound good? Now, he's adding on to the thought that he began in verse 12. So look up at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, we studied this last week, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he's continuing in these three verses to add on to the subject matter that he began in verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you. And let's look together in verse 17. For it is time. Now, the Greek word uh, for time here is kiros. There's two ways to look at time. One is, so I'll meet you tomorrow morning at 8.15 for uh, coffee, right? How many of you guys like coffee? How many of you guys like early morning coffee? Okay, a few of you, good. So there's that way to talk about time. See you at 8.15 at the Crooked Tree or Picasso's, whichever is your favorite here in St. Charles. We'll see you there. There's another way to talk about time, and it would go something like this. I've been in a really strong time of growth in my life. So one is very specific. I'll meet you at 8.15 tomorrow. Another one is describing a season, a a period of time. Uh, The the Greek word kiros here for time is that season. It's that opportune, appointed time. It's not 8.15. It's a broader scale. So Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That statement is quite weighty, wouldn't you agree? Let's, let's leave judgment for a minute, and we'll wrestle with that pretty much for the rest of the night, and let's move on to household of God. So 
that judgment will be put into proper context. Household of God in the Old Testament is a common way to describe the temple. Now, the temple mount is built in the Old Testament to house the holy of holies or the essence of God's presence. I've been to the temple in Jerusalem and Israel. It's a very interesting structure. It has been rebuilt and built several times. And in the Old Testament, when the biblical writers say household of God, it's meaning this collection in the temple of God's presence. But that's not what household of God means here. You see, something happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What happens is, in Acts, there's something that is birthed. And the birth of the church, as we now know it, occurs in the early parts of Acts. How? The Holy Spirit comes down as a gift from Christ because he left to indwell in believers. And I've talked about this many times. We then house the presence of God within us, making us, and I've phrased this many times, mobile, moving temples of God. That's why Scripture says your body is a temple to the Lord. So household of God in the Old Testament means the temple. Household of God in our context and in Peter's means the church. So it is time, the season of time, the opportune time for judgment to come and to begin at you. Now, judgment, shall we? Um, Of all of the words that are described and used in the scriptures, this word judgment has created some of the most controversy. Why? Because people don't know biblically what it means. Listen, people take the word judgment and they have seen some, some depiction of hell in some play with like Satan wearing a red tutu and a tail, right? And, and, and you know, they've seen the courtroom scene with God like sitting up in a black robe with... What we're going to do tonight, listen, through this whole journey is I want to dispel any misnomers that you have in your mind about judgment and I want to learn biblically what it means. Savvy? So that when we leave here, we have a concept biblically of what he means judgment is, what judgment is biblically, and then we can walk away together in one accord. Now, the interesting thing about his first use of judgment here is it's not meaning retribution. What I mean is, judgment can be retribution. Like, when I was seven years old, true story, I was in a gas station, tempted to steal a piece of gum. Have you ever been there as a young kid? Okay. My friend, Sean Thomas, hope he's not listening to the podcast, um, coerced me, right? Hey, dude, seriously, bro, it's like five cents. Bazooka gum, you guys remember it? Right? In the, dude, just, just pocket it, man. It's like, dude, I got a nickel. Like, it's five cents. Yeah, but bro, you'll be you'd be way cooler, and I forget how he phrased it, but that's what was my sense. And so I, uh, I grabbed the bazooka, put it in my pocket, and I rolled, and I bounced. And I was a very convicted young boy. And uh, the moment I left, I started bawling. I mean, I was, I was that kid, you know? And, and so I got home, and my mom's like, like, honey, like, what's your, what's your problem? What's going on? Mom, I, and I pulled out the bazooka gum. I was like, I took the piece of bazooka. I stole this gum, you know? And so my retribution, my judgment, was, as many of you had to experience as you were kids, 
I had to go back into the grocery store, like stand there, you know what I'm saying? I was still sucking my thumb, I think, and, and hand the gas station owner the piece of gum and look him in the eye and say, I stole it. So judgment at times can be retribution. It's justified action or reaction to something that you've done, retribution. You do something and then you get what you deserve. But Peter, in this case, doesn't mean retribution. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because he says judgment begins with the household of God. So what does that mean? What he means here is that judgment is like the refining that we talked about last week. That precious metals, when they're placed in an oven and they're warmed to a specific degree, there's this substance that arises at the top of the metal. And that substance is called dross. And when the dross or the waste or the nastiness is rubbed away, then the pure metal is revealed. When he says judgment here, he's talking not about retribution, listen, but about purging. The church, the household of God, judgment begins with it because God is purging the sin out of the church, making it what? Look more like Jesus. God is through His Spirit convicting the church of the ways that it does not look like King Jesus and He's refining it, purging it through what? Through suffering. Because suffering is the proof, the evidence of genuine faith like we talked about last week. And so as God purges, judges the sin in the church, we are refined and look more like Jesus. And it begs me to ask you, Are you interested in becoming more like Jesus or are you just interested in forgiveness? This is one of the biggest questions the church has struggled with through its entirety. Do they really want to look like Jesus? Do they really want to resemble the maker, the creator, the almighty, or do they just want to feast from forgiveness. I sin and I know through the cross of Christ I can have forgiveness, which is completely true. But Paul says, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. So I ask you, in the depths of your heart, are you really interested in becoming more like Christ or are you just just loving forgiveness? The difference is when God purges us, listen, you long for it. And that's the revelation of believers who have a right view of suffering. When it comes, they know that it's purging the sin in their life, making them more like, more like Christ. And that's Peter's point. Celebrate, rejoice in suffering. Why? Because it's purifying you. It's changing you. So, that's the first judgment. But there's another. Look. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay. I want to set some ground rules here, if I may. Is that cool? Um, I personally have a tremendous amount of baggage with... um, 
How many of you guys have ever seen uh, Heaven's Gate's Hell's Flames? Have you guys seen this play? Know what it's about? I saw this play as a young child. And this play messed me up. Because they take you in. And again, when I say this, listen, I know that people have come to Christ this way. I'm just describing my own experience, okay? So work with me in this. They take you in, and then there's some scene, a a car crash, or someone dies, right? And, And there's multiple people normally that die, and then they take you first into this picture of hell. Satan's in there, and the fogger's going, you know, and the strobe lights, whatever. It feels like a haunted house, for heaven's sakes, you know? But you're sitting in there, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, I was, I was in one of these like four or five years ago, and I remember thinking like this, is, like, this is pretty freaky. And so then, I, they take you out, and sure enough, like there's Jesus, right? But it's not Jesus at all, right? It's like some dude, some passion wannabe, right? And he's got a white robe on, and he's like, okay, and, and if, you know, because you didn't tell so-and-so about Jesus, now they're burning over there in that room, but... But the one person that did hear about Christ, he's over here with me in Yahtzee land. And it just, it just portrays, it portrays this weird view of who God is. Why? Because at the end of this whole thing, what do they say? So which one do you want? Heaven or hell? Any rational person looking at those options? Okay, I hang with the red tutu, right? Or I go, any rational person at this point is, are you with me, scared into heaven. They're taught to say some prayer, and then, there's, then they, they're told that they're going to heaven. They have no concept of the character of God, except heaven must be better than hell. So, the ground rule is this. Let's look at Scripture when he says here, if judgment starts with us, then what will be the outcome for those who don't obey? And I want to teach this in a scholarly way, not in a hellfire and brimstone kind of teaching, but in a way that teaches all of us about the reality of judgment. Are are we cool? Because I think one approach, right, is I get really, really red in the face and we talk about hell and we, or we learn together and then at the end we process and that's what we're going to do, Okay? So I want to show you some passages, and we'll wrestle through. Put up this first passage. Now, Hebrews 9, verse 27 says this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that, the writer says, comes judgment. So the first thing we can learn biblically about judgment is that death happens, and then after death, there is judgment. Next verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is straight from the Scripture. After we die, we're judged. And this particular passage says what? Who's judged? Everyone. There is no escape. There is no escape. Christian, non-believer, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Are we together? Now, this next verse is going to start giving us a picture of what this judgment looks like. Next verse. Matthew 25, 
Jesus is describing judgment, and he describes it in the way of the sheep and the goats. And he says there's some that are sheep or his followers, and there's others that are goats. And here's what he says about the goats, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we learned some key things here about judgment, right? There's going to be a time, all are judged, there's no escape, and biblically Jesus says, out of the words of his mouth, which Peter heard, is that there's going to be separation, and the two options are togetherness with God, or what does he open this with? Depart from me. You see? It's togetherness with God or departing from God. And he also ties in life. As if to say the scripture is true, that faith without works is dead. What about the thief, Mark? The thief is on the cross and his only opportunity to display good works is to defend Jesus. There's the answer. For the rest of us here and now, faith without works is dead. Your life is evidence of what's happening on the inside, you see. So he says, you didn't serve the least of these, and so you didn't serve me. This is why the point was so strong last week. The times that Jesus suffers the most in the Scriptures is when? Is when he is loving the hurting, the lost, the confused. More than any other time in the Gospels, that's when he's ridiculed. Why? Because of this picture. When you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Now, listen, he portrays a very vivid picture of hell in Mark 9. Check this out. And if your eye causes you to sin, this is in a context of talking about temptation to sin, tear it out, he says. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their uh, fire is not quenched. Uh, Strange, right? Where did worms come from? Here's the picture. The fire is not quenched, and the worm never dies. That means there's not a fire that kills. It's just a fire that feels. You see? The worm never dies. The fire is never quenched. This isn't, this isn't hellfire and brimstone. This is just the Bible, the reality, the Scripture. Now, for our context, one more verse. Look at First Thessalonians. A similar audience than what we're reading about now, here's what the writer says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are, who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I want to give you one example, and then I want to close this up. When I was a freshman in high school, uh, there was this day in football that everyone had always warned us about. It was going to be the day of, of, uh, of retribution. It was going to be the day of judgment. No matter if you won or lost, there was going to be a day coming as a football player when you were going to have to pay some penalty. And sure enough, that day came. Now, our high school track was Cinder. You guys remember this? Cinder tracks, remember? I know most of you kids these days, you don't remember these things because you get to run on like clouds, right? But back when I was in school, you had to run on like black uh, cinders that literally could kill you if you fell the right way. You know what I'm saying? Well, the, the first part of this day was we would, we would together had to drag our fingernails along the whole width of the track. So, so after lap one, at the, at the coach said, all right, all right boys, here, here's what you're going to have. Everyone has to bend over and drag your fingernails along the, the centers of the track. I'm pretty particular about my fingernails. Anyone else, right? Just kidding about that, kind of, right? And, and I came up, and literally the whole tips of my fingers bleeding. So you think you're done. Like, all right, that was wretched. And he's like, okay, boys, uh, lap two. Lap two, you bear crawl around the cinder track. Anyone know, know what a bear crawl is? Have you ever seen a bear? Okay? It's all fours, palms, on the cinder track, the whole way around the track. So we go around. I literally, and, and seriously, to this day, it's like the worst thing I've ever had to do. And I come up, everyone's hands are bleeding. Now, if that happened, it would be like class action lawsuit, right? But back when I went to high school, like, you came home, your parents were like, good for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> coach should have kicked you while you were down, boy, you know? But it wasn't done. Listen, lap three, what happened? Now you had to wheelbarrow. You had to get a buddy, right? And they paired us up like the most unequally matched people. Like little dudes with humongous linemen, right? And you had to hold their legs all the way around the track and then do the other. Now, that day... Ten people quit the team. Until we were seniors, we all looked back on that day. That day, we unified. That day, though we knew it was coming and though it was legendary in the school, we unified because together we suffered and together we endured. Peter portrays a very distinct picture. The church, the blessed church, the blessed bride of Christ gets the opportunity to suffer together, be purged together, be purified together, and endure together, thus unifying us as the church, making us not out of brick and mortar, but out of people who have the spirit inside of us, who have wrestled against culture, stood our ground against a, a great enemy, and now together are unified because we have bled together. And maybe it wasn't you that suffered, but maybe you were there picking a brother or sister up. He says there's this option, the unifying peace of the church, or there is the reality of those 
who will have nothing to do with unity, but everything to do with departure. Those people, because of their disobedience of God, their lack of faith in God, they will spend an eternity where the fire is not quenched and when they are not with King Jesus. That's the scripture. What's our response? What's our response? The improper response of Christians and non-Christians alike, the improper response is to take that message and start scaring people into heaven. And say, have you heard how hot hell is? And you take someone who's never even heard of Jesus, and the whole basis of your message is heaven and hell is the gospel. Can I tell you something? Heaven and hell is not the gospel. Heaven and hell is not the gospel. And when we make those two things the gospel, then people accept a false gospel. They accept a very rational, I don't want hell, I want heaven, so give me God. It's like the prosperity gospel. Oh, Jesus will give you that? Well, I'll take Jesus. That's the premise. We cannot paint the picture of heaven or hell. Choose one. The proper response for believers is portrayal of the character of God. Not negating the reality of heaven or hell because they are present. But our message must be the gospel. Must be the forgiveness of sins by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And because of faith in Christ, we get the privilege of being unified with the church and suffering here while we await his return and victory and spend an eternity not playing golf, but worshiping the creator. And if that doesn't sound enticing to you, then you won't like heaven. Too many portrayals of like, in heaven, it's going to be me and Tiger Woods on the green. Probably shouldn't use tiger in that sense. And I'm not saying anything about that. I don't know, but... So listen, for those of you in here that are, that are not believers, I'm not diminishing the reality of judgment. What I hope you hear me doing is saying that judgment can be overcome by the power of the cross. And then we get to verse 18. Check this out. And if the righteous is scarcely saved. Now, I I was in the church for many years. Many years, many years. I grew up in the church. People would always say righteousness, and I would never know what that meant. I try to act like I did. Have you ever done that in church? You just try to act like you know what everyone's talking about, but you really don't? Oh, righteousness, right on. Praise God, right? Righteousness, brother. You're righteous. Everyone's good, righteous. But I never really knew what it meant. Like if someone were to ask me what righteous was, I'd be like, well, you know, it's being, it's being utchess of right, right? Like it's, you know, you put two and two together and then, then you get there. So listen, the power of the cross is seen in who is made righteous. Put up this passage for me. In Romans chapter 3, look at this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, so I want to try to paint this picture for you. The righteousness of God is essenced in God. 
God is ultimately righteous, all powerful, all right, all pure. The power of this passage comes, look, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, stay with me and I'll explain it. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So look, God is all righteous, all powerful, all good, all pure. He sends his son, Jesus, to become righteousness on our behalf, the scripture says. That righteousness then, by belief in Jesus, gets imputed, put in his followers. What makes you and I righteous, seen as righteous, isn't by, it sounds like a, like a Bill and Ted's right word, what, what is seen in righteousness in us is not by anything that you do. Any act that you could ever do God never looks down and says, oh yes, there's a righteous child of mine. No. It's imputed. It's given to you because of Christ. It's imputed in you. That's why you are righteous. That's why Peter says here, if the righteous are scarcely saved, they're righteous because God has made them righteous through Christ. Are you with me? He goes on, look, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or took on the wrath of God, don't have time to explain it, by his blood to be received by faith. So, here's the concept, and I'll move on. We receive Christ by faith. We trust in Christ. I believe you're real. And then through Christ, you and I, not by any righteous thing that we have ever done, were seen as righteous. That's the power of the cross. Sinful, maligned punks like me and you are seen in the eyes of God through the lens of King Jesus. Righteous. What Peter says is this. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here's what he says. Scarcely, here the Greek word is difficult. If the righteous are saved with difficulty, and I want to explain this, that this doesn't mean that Christ has difficulty saving us. It means that there was a lot put in to saving his children. Like namely, all of history and a plan that evolves. God knew it the whole time, but to humans, it unfolded. So though sinner or though the righteous are scarcely saved, he says, what will become then of the ungodly? It's like, if it was difficult for the righteous, then what does that mean for the unrighteous? It means judgment. I mean, spending literally, literally an eternity in a fire that's not quenched. That's not reason for any of you to to start believing in God. But what it does do in the believer is it better make us grateful, anyone? It better make us grateful. It better cause us to sit back and say, thank you, for making me righteous by your blood. That I get to experience union with you for an eternity. Now look, all of this comes together beautifully in verse 19. This is, a, this is an unbelievable verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Okay, there's, there should be something that, that sticks out to you about this verse. Anyone? Come on, come on. What sticks out to you about this verse? Anyone? Come on. Every time that I study the scripture, I'm always asking questions. I'm like, well, what about this piece? And what about this piece? And what does this mean? Like, what's one of the big questions you have about this verse? Come on. Participation here. Okay, definitely. Suffered. What else? Entrust your souls. Brilliant picture. Anything else? God's will. Yes, all of this was happening because of the sovereign plan of God. Anything else? Faithful creator. Now, the moment I read that, I was like, that's unique. You know how unique it is? It's the only time it's seen in Scripture. One time, right here. You know how many times creator's in the Bible? Six. You know how many times in the New Testament? Only three. Strange, right? The moment I read this, I was like, this is incredibly unique. I don't know that I've ever read this before. Faithful creator. Now, what is he doing? What is Peter doing in this moment? Listen, he's developed two pieces of God's character. He's developed the judge of God's character. The judge piece of his character. And he's used the Old Testament to do it. Verse 17, reeks of Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. All right? Verse 18, reeks of Proverbs he develops this judging piece of God's character. God as judge. The psalmist writes, God is the righteous judge. And this is the piece of God's character that most of us struggle with. How could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? How could a loving God ever leave any, any children? How could God do that? So he paints this picture of God's character. God is judge. And then what does he do? He paints the other side. God is faithful creator. The two opposite ends of the spectrum in our minds, judge and faithful creator. And he does it in one verse to escalate in our hearts the power of the character of God. And here's what I need to say to each of us. Many of us struggle loving God as judge. So much so that we just suppress that piece of God. God surely can't be a judge like that. My warning to you is this, is if you do that, then you are not worshiping God. God is judge because he is the definition of righteousness. Making him, as scripture calls him, the only righteous judge. If we fail to love that piece of who God is, we fail to love God. We've taken God's character, morphed it into something that's convenient for us, and left out a critical aspect. We cling to faithful creator. We cling to a loving God who faithfully made everything, who is dependable, all-enduring, sent his son to a cross, all of those things. But we shy away from a God in his righteousness who could look and say, you have not obeyed me. You do not know me. Depart from me. We don't want to love that God, but I'm saying if we don't, that's not God. God is righteous judge. He is faithful creator. And the picture for Peter's readers and for you and I is we better start dealing with the fullness of God's character, friends. And when we do, 
our minds open to the power of God. And the response from believers becomes gratitude. And what does he say here? Trust and obey. Remember the hymn? Trust and obey for there's no other way you see it here. Entrust your souls to the faithful creator while doing good. The response of believers is they trust. I have nowhere to go. You are righteous judge and you are faithful creator, so I will trust and obey. You are all you have everything of me because you hold me in your hand as the righteous judge. I'm not just going to go to you when it's convenient for forgiveness. I'm going to understand that you will, because of disobedience, release those who do do not know you. And you know what, God? Though I don't understand it, I love it that you are the righteous judge. Have you ever said that before? Have you ever prayed, God, will you help me love the fact that you're a righteous judge? That is God. That's the character of God. Faithful, dependable, and righteous, just God. And so we respond with trust and obedience. Here, I give you all that I am. I'm nothing. And to the unbelievers here, those who don't believe, can I say this to you? The power of the righteousness of God is that it too can be given to you that you may be seen as righteous in the eyes of God through the sacrifice of Christ. And there's no need for you to tarry It's not come to God because of hell. It's come to God because he is righteous judge and faithful creator and everything in between. That is God. Can you guys stand with me? feel like over and over and over the church has just said here's God as the way we define God and the way that makes God convenient and look the prettiest for us and so we're just going to talk about that God and any other picture we're just going to release because it's just it's too hard and what I'm telling you is understanding God as righteous judge it opens our heart to worship. It it creates a healthy fear in us and awe in us. To negate that piece of God's character is to take out an opportunity for us to respond in gratitude, church. So true entrusting is surrendering, period. Period. True entrusting is is just saying, I've got nothing but you. I surrender everything to you. Here I am, all of me, every piece of me, every sin that I've ever done, every thought that I've ever had. I'm only seen as righteous because of you, so take my life. And so tonight we respond to a righteous judge and a faithful creator. And Peter says, trust and obey.